0: Well, thank you. Does anybody else have stuck in their heads now? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling down the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. Anybody? Nobody? All right. Fine. Uh, we are. Uh, we are only one week away from being... At the end of our current sermon series, Revelation for Not Crazy People, I know, contain your your disappointment, please. Um, I, I know that you're just heartbroken, but we have to move on to Advent. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> so we are uh, reaching the pinnacle of this book the next two weeks, this week and the next. So let's dive into what's going on. So this is this passage today is the climax of the book of Revelation, the final battle. Everything so far has been building up to this point, the showdown between good and evil. And so now we've got these beasts, and we have this dragon, and they're making war against heaven, which you might remember they previously tried to do and didn't go particularly well. And now they're back and trying to make war on God and so we have everybody lining up on their sides. We have Jesus over here, except whereas before he was a lamb that was slaughtered, now he's transformed into this majestic uh, and powerful warrior figure, and he's leading the angel armies behind him, and, and then lining up on the other side, we have our recurrent cast of characters from the past couple weeks. We've got the sea beast who's in charge, flanked by the land beast, and, and who did they make an alliance with but the kings of the earth, and and those those with power, those men who have bought into the promise the seductiveness of the empire and these kings are also on board to join in overthrowing heaven so everybody's lined up on their sides and the angel appears in the middle and is like let's get ready to rumble and by the way, vultures get ready to feast and of course we all know how this goes you've seen the movie right you've seen like uh, like any good movie epic movies fight scenes like lord of the rings right you have this you have this hard fought battle and it's it's tough but the good guys eventually eke out the win right they eventually win after this big climactic battle and so here in revelation we are ready for an all out cage match between good and evil and then nothing it's an anticlimax all of a sudden god's like oh hey wait i'm god okay Let's not worry about all that stuff. And so the whole book has been building up to this final confrontation, which never really happens. The all-out war never happens. Instead, the angels just go, and they pluck up the sea beast and the land beast and throw them into that ever-burning lake of fire that you've heard about. And then to top it off, Jesus goes and slaughters every enemy combatant. So there's that. That's fun. We hear nothing about the enemies even fighting, right? We, they never even start. And, of course, he wasn't even part of the battle, but the dragon, Satan, uh, who, of course, is the head head honcho, gets plucked up and thrown in the bottomless pit. So not the lake of fire, the bottomless pit. And he's chained up for a thousand years. And, but after a thousand years, they, of course, have to let him go for a little bit, Obviously. Don't ask me why. Um, maximum sentencing loss. Is that a thing? I don't know. So there are so many directions that we can go here. <clears throat> and I think that one of the main ones that's worth reflecting on today is this problem of divine violence. Because we've changed here, haven't we? In the first half of the book that we skipped so by the way, we skipped like half the book, so we could have gone another six weeks. You're welcome. Anyway, so in the half of the book we skipped, um, Jesus is described as this lamb who has been slaughtered, this very sacrificial, self-giving imagery, right? And But that's changed now, hasn't it? This lamb has, instead of a lamb, we now have a warrior decked out in battle garb on his war horse and leading armies into battle with his sword ready to cut everybody down. That is a bit of a shift, is it not? And this creates problems when we're thinking about how we image God. And this is one of the areas that, frankly, John could have done better. Remember his cut-and-dry, black-and-white worldview? Well, sometimes it was helpful, like helping him to resist empire. It here creates problems and problems including him reveling in violence against the other side. And so at the same time as that, though, it's possible that these problematic images, problematic words and descriptions, can somehow help us still reflect on some stuff. So for example... Many of us have rightly rejected this view of God that is floated around in popular Christianity in America, of uh a angry, wrathful, judgmental God. And the, the classic instance of this is this early American sermon during the Great Awakening by a guy named Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? And it just depicts how we're dangling by a thread over the fiery pit of eternal damnation and, and but for the grace of God, granted the same God who's dangling us by the thread over the pit of fiery destruction. Uh, but, but for the grace of God, we would be burning forever in hell. And because of Jesus' intervention on our behalf, that is why we are not suffering God's wrath in hell permanently. And so there's this image that we are wretched human beings and are and should be damned except for Jesus' action on our behalf. It's this image of this brutal angry, violent God. And many, if not most of us, have pretty rightly and soundly rejected that image of God, have we not? We've decided there must be a different way to conceptualize God, to to make a sense of God that doesn't revel in divine anger and cruelty. But in our eagerness to reject that, Sometimes we swing too far the other way. And so we understand, for example, that God is purely love. That is, God is caring and nurturing, and this is the dominant, if not sole, image we have of God. And that's part of why these images from John are so repulsive, right? Is it not? Because how can you make sense of a Jesus slaughtering tons and tons of people if your conception of God is purely love? it doesn't fit and it's an appropriate criticism and there might also be something we're missing when we're so strongly pushing back on that because so there's a rich tradition including throughout the entirety of the bible including the new testament frankly reflecting on god's anger and Frankly, it would be the height of spiritual hubris to insist that we are the only ones who've ever figured out that God is love and thought about that in a helpful way and and that these other centuries and millennia of Christians have nothing productive to add to our conversation. But at the same time, without going full bore sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? Right? And in my mind, this idea of God's anger actually works with this idea of God's being pure love. Which is good, because even though we deny it, we way too often fall into this trap of, of sentimentality and uh, frou-frou-ness of God's love when we're thinking about that, right? And, uh, but if we were to actually reflect on anger, it could help us to reach a more mature, more developed, more nuanced perspective of who God is. Because here's the thing. God wants the world to be right. How God designed it to be functioning well, to be life-giving, to not be broken, corrupted by evil, right? So given that, how should a loving God react to evil in the world? To the most heinous aspects of Human societies, to horrendous acts done against others. To be a loving God, it's possible that God might also need to be an angry God because a loving God could not look. At the evil, the exploitation, the oppression, the domination in the world. Could not look at innocent people suffering at the hands of others wanting pure power. Could not look at people suffering under the burdens of racism and heterosexism and of social tyranny. And could not look at the ways in which we destroy each other for our own gain. A loving God could not look at that and not be angry to be a loving God, when God sees the brokenness in the world, nay, nay the ways in which we exploit others for our own gain, for money, for sex, for power, seeing others as disposable, as objects, just for your own benefit. If God were to look at that and not have any sort of negative reaction, just blissfully loving everybody in this saccharine way, it seems to me that God would not truly be loving and especially god would not be loving the victims of that exploitation of that oppression of that dehumanization because in situations such as these where humans and systems dominate others to be passive is to be neutral to be uh, to be passive to be neutral is to take sides with the aggressor. If God were not to react with anger or indignation or at least some negative sort of emotion, it would be God not loving them by not caring about their distress, by not standing with them against the exploitation that's happening to them. So I submit for God to be a loving God God must also be a God who, when faced with injustice, when faced with the worst of what we have become, when faced with the people and systems and institutions and ways of being that damage those in our world, God must be angry. In order for God to truly love those chewed up and spit out of those systems, anger must also be a a facet, an expression of God's love. So look back at our passage. <laughs> Remember the Roman Empire, the sea beast. Yes, um, they build themselves as the pinnacle of civilization, the best thing that's ever existed, the bringing a light into the world. But all this was rooted in domination of the other in rooted in military slaughter of people and subsequent exploitation of those left alive and the whole thing required perpetual violence to expand their empire and then to extract the needed resources to run their expanding empire and to let the tiny sliver of the upper crust have a luxurious way of life on the backs of everybody else. This Roman empire is what John is railing against. This way that the empire is rooted in violence is antithetical to God's empire," John says. And remember who is standing in for the empire in these stories, but the beasts that are fighting leading a war against God. This is what John says is going to be destroyed. What John is trying to convey is the degree to which a loving God cannot stand idly by in the midst of these societal systems built on the blood of the poor and the vulnerable. This loving God, John declares, yes, using violent and problematic imagery, but this loving God cannot stand by while that happens. John is trying to drive this point that God does take this stuff exceptionally seriously. God is furious, John insists, that these very people that God created in God's own image are being stripped of that image and being broken through the evil that exists in the world. Because for God to truly be a God of love God must get angry and decisively take sides on the side of those who are being victimized. So this week, as you interact with your world, may you too experience that anger that comes out of the deep love of the world that God created and that points to our yearning for the way the world should be. May it be so.